Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hello, friends and neighbors, and welcome to our weekly Reporters Roundtable on the Bill Press Pod this Friday, August 13. And Triscodecophobia be damned, we're still here at the end of another big news week with lots to catch up on before we head into the weekend. Uh, to everybody's surprise, New York's Andrew Cuomo, despite early indications he might try to trump it out, actually resigned as governor of New York. But is he setting himself up for a political comeback? Equally to everyone's surprise, the Senate actually passed a bill, first time in a long time, a $1.2 trillion bipartisan bill on infrastructure. Now, the big question is, can they get enough votes in the House? And can Democrats also round up enough votes for their $3.5 trillion so-called human infrastructure bill coming up next? And on the COVID front, while new COVID cases soar among the yet-as-yet-unvaccinated population, at least three Republican governors still refuse to follow CDC guidelines on masks and vaccinations. Will they pay any political price? Plenty for today's panel to sink their teeth into, so let's jump right in with Leah Askarinam, Editor-in-Chief of the National Journal Hotline. Hello, Leah. Good morning, Bill. Good to have you back. Sudeep Reddy, Managing Editor of Politico. Welcome back, Sudeep. Hi, Bill. And Gabe DiBenedetti, National Political Correspondent of New York Magazine. Hello, Gabe. Hey, Bill. Good to be here. Well, it may not have deserved it, but it got most of the headlines this week. So let's start with New York. Uh, and here is uh, Governor Cuomo about halfway through his address to the people of New York, where he kindly dropped the, he did drop the big bomb. New York tough means New York loving. And I love New York. And I love you. And everything I have ever done has been motivated by that love. And I would never want to be unhelpful in any way. And I think that given the circumstances, the best way I can help now is if I step aside. All right, let's start with our New Yorker. Gabe, honestly, did you see this coming? And what does it mean for the people in New York? Uh, you know, it's hard to say whether I saw it coming. I don't think anyone saw it coming in precisely the shape that it did come in. Obviously, the, the findings of the report, the investigative report, the attorney general's report were fairly devastating uh, and really horrifying what Cuomo uh, had done. Um, but I think one of the things that's very interesting here is you saw uh, throughout his speech when he was winding up to this resignation, you know, a lot of people, if you just looked on Twitter, people who know him very well, who follow him and have followed him for years, kept saying, this is Cuomo digging in. This guy does not yeah. resign. There's no way he's going yeah. to fight this yeah. out. He's going to stick this out. And then he said, by the way, I'm resigning in 14 days. <laughs> so, yeah, I was surprised in that sense. 
I wouldn't be surprised if he's trying to mount some sort of political comeback down the line, but we can talk about that later. Um, as for what it means for the people of New York, you know, we'll get our new first new governor in a very, very long time. Now the 2022 gubernatorial race is going to be even more interesting than it previously was. But I think one of the big questions right now is obviously it's a very politically interesting moment uh, for COVID purposes. You know, obviously the resurgence in New York is not as bad as in some other places, but there are still some big questions, particularly about school reopenings. And we're going to have a major shift in uh, the leadership of the state, just as a lot of these debates are breaking down. And in terms of broader politics, well, Andrew Cuomo was a massive figure in American politics over the last year and a half. And all of a sudden he's no longer. Does it have any impact, Leah, on the Democratic Party nationwide? I wouldn't say that there's a clear impact. What happened with Andrew Cuomo was so isolated to kind of him and potentially his circle. Uh, we saw Democrats distance themselves from him pretty quickly after the first accusation started coming out. And when the attorney general's report came out, that's when you really saw the dam break and saw you know, President Biden uh, call for Andrew Cuomo to resign. So I, I don't think it has a, a major uh, impact nationally for Democrats. I think the question now is uh, who the new governor, Kathy Hochul, first female governor of New York, who she chooses as her running mate and uh, if there is a Democratic primary ahead of 2022. I mean, I was surprised that he resigned mostly because he was up for reelection in 2022. And so I, I kind of expected him to wait this out uh, yeah. and then just yeah. not run. Um, but now I think we have a, a potentially interesting Democratic primary on our hands. Um, we'll, we'll see. And, and Sudeep, um, Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul, uh, made no bones about the fact that uh, she's not really a Cuomo insider and things are going to be different. Yeah, exactly. She had to, <laughs> to separate herself as much as she could uh, from this, which is different from a lot of people who uh, seem to have gotten uh, entangled in this. Uh, some for uh, for innocent reasons, some because they were they were Cuomo insiders, and so um, this is this is going to, I think, help. Um, Democrats make a clean break from uh, from all of this and uh, and move on by having Kathy Hochul just just be a, a complete uh, change from where it was and she's uh, she's a very different style and I think we'll see a, a very different uh, tone as well uh, certainly not uh, not not the fighter that uh, Cuomo looked like the last uh, year or so. Yeah, Leah, you were around when Kathy Hochul was in the Congress. Uh, I don't remember her making a mark here at all or much of a mark as lieutenant governor. What do we know about her? So I actually spoke to her a couple years ago as lieutenant governor about being a running mate for an article I wrote about women um, on, on running huh. for office yeah. on the same <laughs> ticket as men. Um, and I, I believe it was in 2019. And at the time, she was already emphasizing that she and Cuomo had a kind of divide and conquer approach. So her congressional district was in Buffalo, but she served for a really short time because she was elected right before redistricting. So her district was very quickly drawn into uh, a very uh -huh. district. So she really didn't have much time to make a major national mm -hmm. uh, impact, but she is known in New York State as, you know, uh, she's had a more of a kind of moderate record. Um, she was known as the outside, the, 
the candidate who would get votes outside of New York for the governor's ballot, outside of New York City. Right. Um, and so now she gets to choose a running mate, likely who has deep New York City connections to kind of, you know, consolidate the state behind her. You know, Gabe, uh, several of you have mentioned, or a couple of you have mentioned that uh, very quickly, uh, Democrats, starting with Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, the entire New York delegation, most of the New York legislature, Democrats there, Democrat Joe Biden, uh, called for Cuomo to resign. Um, quite a contrast with, I just noticed this morning, uh, new information coming out about Congressman Matt Gates under criminal investigation for crimes a lot worse than Andrew Cuomo was accused of. I haven't heard any Republicans calling for Matt Gates to resign. Are we looking at a double standard here, the way the parties approach this? Yeah, I mean, Bill, we could have had this conversation literally any day over the last five years. I mean, let's be very clear that this is uh, Donald Trump was accused of of, of pretty egregious things, too, uh, in terms of personal behavior. And of course, Republicans were not by and large calling on him to resign. Yeah, there there are different ways that these parties handle these uh, these these things. But I think the truth is that a lot of Democrats are making the calculus, and it's not a very hard calculation to make, that they don't need Andrew Cuomo in their party. He's not that influential a figure in the national party. Now, he used to be close to Joe Biden, and Nancy Pelosi used to like him. Uh, he and Chuck Schumer have always had a complicated relationship, but especially in recent months, as this has dragged on and Cuomo has really dug in, national Democrats have not really felt the need to stand by him or to say much uh, positively about him because there have been questions about the way he ended up handling the COVID response in New York, obviously the findings of the various reports and of uh, you know journalistic reporting on Cuomo have been fairly galling. And Democrats basically said, well, we don't need this right now. If this person is really supposed to be a leader of our party, this isn't the message that we want to send. There's nothing complicated about it. Republicans have simply made the opposite calculus, which is that no one person is representative except for Donald Trump, and you can't say that Donald Trump did anything bad ever. So let's move on from that conversation <laughs> entirely. Uh, but I do think there's something interesting here, which is that Cuomo, many people have said that Cuomo is a Biden Democrat. I don't think that's exactly right. Cuomo is a Cuomo Democrat, and he had a very distinctive <laughs> operating style. But I, you know, I saw this, People, some folks have been talking about this in um, you know, New York journalistic circles. The combination of Kathy Hochul and Eric Adams, who will be the new mayor of New York right. City, uh, is a right. pretty good approximation of Joe Biden's political coalition. Mm -hmm. You know, fairly moderate uh, uh, ex-urban women and um, older black men in cities. I mean, that's really in many ways what elected Joe Biden and where his power is. And he understands what this Democratic Party looks like, if it looks like that, more than the Andrew Cuomo version. Well, speaking of the president and his uh, political power, um, he had a big win this week in the Senate, um, and uh, with 19 Democrats voting for the Republicans, rather voting for the infrastructure bill. Uh, here is President Biden saying, "Infrastructure, it's finally going to happen." After years and years of infrastructure week, we're on the cusp of an infrastructure decade that I truly believe will transform America. It's funny how that infrastructure week inside joke, Sudeep, has kind of now become a national meme, I guess. But uh, to use Joe Biden's phrase, when you look at this infrastructure bill and the bipartisan vote it got, Sudeep, uh, to use Biden's phrase, this is a big fucking deal, isn't it? It is. It is. A, uh, he's finally gotten another BFD, at least one one in his first <laughs> year, uh, first year in office. And look, this is 
This is uh, Biden overcoming just enormous skepticism on the left and the right that this was going to be possible to get anything that's bipartisan. Um, and so what he he probably gave up in in policy by looking for a bipartisan uh, approach uh, to this. He could have gotten a lot more money if he had forced a, a reconciliation approach to infrastructure. Um, but he's going to he's going to win at least a few points on the politics of this. As somebody who is uh, at least trying to. Uh, to work across the aisle. Um, this might be one of the only things uh, he's actually able to deliver uh, that's across the aisle, and it shows that infrastructure uh, really was ripe uh, for this, but um, he now has to obviously carry this through the House where you already have uprisings uh, from mm -hmm. uh, the, the uh, progressives on the, the, the far left and from moderates who uh, really uh, are at odds over this approach. Yeah, how do you read the House, Leah? Uh, you you follow it pretty closely. As Sadiq indicated, it, it looks like that the complaints so far, at any rate, have not come from Republicans. They're just like all against it, but from either moderate Democrats uh, or progressive Democrats. Right, and we saw this morning uh, a group of moderate Democrats come out with their own demands. We're going to see progressive Democrats with their own demands. Um, <laughs> lots of letters are going to be written um, that will be public or you know, open letters to the president, whatever they are. Uh, in the end, these are not new for the House. With a, such a narrow majority, five seats, um, Democrats are already working with, uh, a, it, it's already going to be a, a pretty tough uh, process, but they also have Nancy Pelosi. Um, that's probably why I'm a little bit more bullish on the idea that I do think something will get through. Um, she's generally been pretty good at getting her uh, caucus in order. So I, I can imagine in the next, you know, few weeks seeing uh, progressive statements come out with their own demands and maybe a little bit of back and forth with the Biden administration. Uh, and the question is, you know, can Nancy Pelosi muscle it through? I, I expects probably yes i was at the briefing at the white house this week on tuesday and every time the subject came up um jen saki the press secretary just simply said we have total confidence in nancy pelosi's leadership <laughs> she repeated it over yeah. and over right just, yeah yeah they're, they don't want any distance between them themselves and uh, and nancy pelosi uh, but but gave 19 republicans voted for this despite the fact that from Bedminster, New Jersey, Donald Trump kept saying, no, this is a bad deal. Don't give Joe Biden a win. And even Mitch McConnell voted for it. What's that tell us about, or does it say anything about Trump's waning influence? I think Trump's influence over the way that individual senators vote on things like infrastructure has always been a little bit overstated. This is not the most politically salient uh, bill right now in terms of you know Trump's base voters and Trump releasing these statements via email has nowhere near the impact that his tweets used to or that you know his going up uh, at the in the White House briefing room and just saying things used to or even in front of the helicopters when you could barely hear him. Um, <laughs> I, I think the truth is that you know sort of what has we've just been talking about there is always political space for some sort of infrastructure deal and i think what you saw uh over the last few months with republicans talking about some of the positive elements that they really liked of the recovery package the covid recovery package even though they hadn't voted for it i think that was very instructive because there's a lot of stuff that they can vote for that they can support that's very popular even among their voters and that's also true in this infrastructure package um that they didn't think that they were getting enough credit for so sure 
move on from this, say that you can take this win. Uh, they're not suddenly becoming, you know, Joe Biden's best friends. They're not going to vote with him for a lot of other stuff. <laughs> and in fact, right. having voted for this gives a lot of them the opportunity to say, we voted with this with you on infrastructure. We're going to stand strong against your, you know, massive liberal takeover of the country with the next thing. Uh, they'll say that, and then of course they'll show up for the ribbon cu ribbon cutting when the new bridge or highway opens. <laughs> well, yeah, sure. <laughs> take, Welcome to Washington, <laughs> and take credit for it, even even if they voted against it. But depending so deep on how you um, define infrastructure, this is only the first of the two infrastructure bills bills coming. Some still call it the soft or human infrastructure bill. Three and a half trillion dollars, the budget proposal, uh, which. Uh, followed up the infrastructure vote with a vote by just 50 Democrats pushing that forward. Um, again, any chance? Sadiq, how do you read it? Yeah, look, that is the that is the, the real BFD, is if you can uh, oh, get, get, yeah. get, the, get the human infrastructure, the American families plan through, um, that's the one that, that could have transformational effects. Uh, both uh, from a policy perspective, uh, just a, a, a total uh, change in, in some areas like childcare that haven't seen it, but also from a from a, a political uh, perspective because it it will put things in place that uh, that are going to be really difficult for any uh, any lawmaker to run against or to unwind down the road, and so um, that that's where. Uh, where he's going to have to to step up and push this through um, the the resistance from moderates uh, in the House and and make sure he gets the uh, the the, the mansion cinema uh, senators <laughs> right. mm -hmm. uh, on board to keep them keep them strong through all of this. Uh, you know, Leah, when I looked at the list of of what's in this uh, human infrastructure bill, I mean, it is the wish list, the progressive, forever progressive wish list, right? Everything is in it. Um, free K through 12, free community college, you know, expanding Medicare to include vision and dental and hearing. I mean, it goes on and on. I mean, th this is, um, I, I think Bernie Sanders said it would be the biggest uh, investment in working families, if you will, since the Great Depression. Yeah, would being the, what? <laughs> the key word Good there. Um, I mean, it's funny when you say progressive wish list, that's literally a phrase that Republicans uh, are using and had used the 2020 campaign mm -hmm. um, to characterize Democrats as, you know, kind of uh, uh, taking their narrow majority, Biden's narrow win, and overreaching. Um, so that's that's something that, you know, we're going to see Demo uh, Republicans continue to use. That said, um, are we going to see Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema come out in favor of all these items? I mean, absolutely not. Um, yeah. This is, I think, a, a very much a starting point. Um, and the question is, first off, if you look at the Republicans who voted um, in favor of the Senate bill that went through, um, very few of the ones who voted in favor were actually in competitive races in 2022. It was just Lisa Murkowski and um, Chuck Grassley, which, I mean, whether that's competitive race is one question, whether he runs for re-election is, is another one. But I mean, there's still a major political calculus that most Republicans are going to have to make in addition to a lot of Democrats who are going to be 
in tough races in the first midterm of Biden's administration. And you can expect uh, they're going to have to make some some pretty difficult um, calculations there. And Gabe, what I find interesting in this, too, is that the key player maybe in in getting this um the key player in getting, first of all, the infrastructure bill through, and now in getting uh, the follow-up bill through, uh, is Bernie Sanders, right? Who um, you and I, I think, first got together, Gabe, back in 2016. Yeah. <laughs> uh, talking about Bernie Sanders, and now he's become, you know, a major force um, pushing this legislation through, which is not everything that progressives want. I have to say, uh, I keep having flashbacks to when Bernie was first talking about running for president in 2016, and he kept delaying his um, announcement of his presidential campaign, which, of course, he didn't expect would propel him here. Uh, but he kept delaying it because he wanted to be able to do more work in the budget committee. He cares a lot about the budget committee. Uh, and now, as the chairman, you know, is someone who... Uh, you know, controls remarkable power in Washington. He's not the lead yeah. negotiator. Everyone knows where he stands. But I, I agree with you, Bill. I think that his position here is really underrated. Um, but I, I, not just because of his position on the left flank of the party, which is surprised to no one at this point, um, but because of his willingness to compromise, but also to negotiate, to work with fellow senators. This is a, something that Chuck Schumer has been working on him with for four years now. Uh, but I think you're really starting to see the fruit that here um, in the sense that you very rarely hear about Bernie Sanders himself threatening to hold up the progress of, of the Biden agenda. In part, that's because he helped shape the Biden agenda, but it's also because he's a realist. He understands at this point, you know, he's not going to run for president again. This is a big part of what his legacy could be. But more importantly, in his eyes, this is could be transformational change for the country. This is what he has fought for. Right. So in that sense, pretty straightforward stuff. Yeah. Pragmatic progressivism, I guess, a new uh, <laughs> a new school here for uh, Bernie Sanders. Uh, lots going on here. We've just covered, just getting started. Let's take a quick break, and then we'll be back with uh, today's panel on the roundtable with Leah Escarinam from National Journal Hotline, Sudeep Reddy from Politico, Gabe DiBenedetti from New York Magazine. It's the Bill Press Pod. And today's roundtable brought to you by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, great men and women of the Teamsters Union under the leadership of President Jim Hoffa. They are America's largest and most diverse union with over one and a half million members representing just about every factor and every element of the American workforce you can imagine, from vegetable workers in California to construction workers in Las Vegas, brewery workers, of course, in St. Louis, and bakery workers up there in the state of Maine. As they say, they represent everybody from A to Z, from airline pilots to zookeepers, and they're big supporters of the Bill Press Pod, for which we are very grateful. Check out their website at teamster.org. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. 
With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we're back on the Bill Press Pod. And today's roundtable, Gabe DiBenedetti joins us, national political correspondent, New York Magazine, Sudeep Reddy, managing editor of Politico, Leah Askarnam, editor-in-chief of the national journal Hotline, uh, yesterday, the big numbers from the census came out, uh, looking uh, at the results of the last census, which shows that America is um, more diverse, less white, more urban, and less rural. Uh, Leah, you did a whole webinar on the hotline on redistricting and what to expect. Uh who does this help? Who, who looks good coming out of these numbers, Democrats or Republicans? Well, I think there's a, the, it actually feels a lot like the results after the reapportionment data was released by the census. And full disclosure here, I am relying a lot on Kirk Beto's reporting from yesterday at National Journal, who's been covering this. Uh-huh. Um, but what we're seeing is basically Republicans have affirmed their advantage. Um, they look like they'll be able to draw themselves um, an extra, uh, an additional seven seats, which is enough to regain the majority. That's not surprising. That's something that we had expected to see. Um, the silver lining for Democrats is that the growth in population that we did see occur, and again, the national growth was was really slow. Um, it, it hasn't been as slow, I think, since seventeen. Uh, in a long time. It had been a long time. <laughs> I, I'm going to space out on the date. Um, but where there was growth was in the suburbs. Um, and that is where Democrats have been uh, making a lot of progress in the last five, six years, especially. Um, then we're seeing outside of suburbs and outside of cities, um, a majority of counties have seen a decrease in population. So all of this is to say that the places where that have been traditionally Republican strongholds are decreasing in population. The places where Democrats are gaining traction are increasing in population. Now, whether there's an immediate impact from that in 2022 remains to be seen, but we're talking about redistricting for the next 10 years. And so we could see some of these districts that start off being, you know, likely Republican, lean Republican, um, start gravitating toward Democrats, kind of like what we saw in the 2018 wave after seeing these suburban Republican districts uh, remain, you know, really solid red through redistricting in 2011 all the way through 2018, take a pretty hard uh, turn uh, with uh, the 2018 midterms. So, Sudeep, it seems to me then that what, what uh, Leah is describing is like a split screen where, on the one hand, uh, 
if you look at the demographics and if you look at the geography, uh, getting more diverse and getting more urban and more suburban and less rural, that helps the Democrats. On the other side of the screen, Republicans in red states hold the power to draw the new district lines. <laughs> and so they can basically defy what the census numbers are and still uh, come up with more seats in the Congress. Is that is that the way you read it? Yeah, and, and it, it does mean that the 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 really uh, uh, toxic politics we've had of the past decade are likely to continue in this kind of approach. The uh, the urban rural divide that we we've, uh, we've witnessed the the red state blue state divide all the things that are animating our discussions about uh, COVID and vaccines and and everything else will will continue in this kind of approach. It's obviously a, a historic shift. Uh, to see this happening, but um, I, I tend to think it, it won't happen without uh, quite a bit of fighting as it happens. So um, people who are, are uh, seeing their representation slowly diminish are going to to perhaps see some of the uh, the, the greatest uh, grievance along the way um, as it happens. Uh, and Gabe, you, uh, without giving away too many secrets, you now find yourself uh, at least temporarily in the state of Texas. I mean, there's a great example, right? Texas, like California, is a majority-minority state, but it's not reflected in the political representation. Sure. I think that, uh, you know, Democrats in general were, are well past now for the last few years, the, the whole idea that demographics is destiny. But just Texas is a great example of what uh, what we're talking about, because Texas has been changing very rapidly. Um, and with that has come a lot of Democratic um, excitement, shall we say, that it's going to be a blue mm -hmm. state any day now. And that's not happening. It's getting significantly <laughs> closer uh, than it was, at least on the national level, statewide. You know, Beto O'Rourke came close. Joe Biden came closer than Hillary Clinton, who came closer than Barack Obama. But uh, <laughs> right, the right. reality is that it's, you know, it's still a deep red state, politically speaking, especially at the state legislature level where, where you know, you see every day the um, the the uh, outcome of, of this redistricting process that is now going to happen again, where you have a heavily Republican legislature with immense power over the Democrats who can't really do much. And you see that with the fights over, for example, voting rights. Um, so uh, the thing about the census data is I don't think any of it was a huge surprise. There were some interesting dynamics in terms of which cities have grown faster than expected. But right. we know and have known for a long time that this country is diversifying quickly. Uh, I think that the bigger question right now is what these fights over redistricting are going to look like. But then again, that's just what we've been saying. And it's what everyone in politics has been saying ever since uh, Joe Biden won. Right. Uh, the, uh, the only way out I see for Democrats is something like the has happened in California and which is contained in the voting rights bill which would take redistricting out of the hands of the elected politicians and put it in the hands of some um, commission. commission, some commission yeah. or something. Uh, do you at the national, do you see that happening in many states? So we're seeing redistricting commissions form in a lot of states. And actually we've seen um, in some democratic states, a little bit of buyer's remorse there where, you know, states did not realize <laughs> yeah. that they were right. like Virginia did not realize that they were going to be democratic states by the time of a uh, 2021 redistricting. But I will also just warn that this idea that all redistricting commissions are independent is just not true. 
Um, a lot of them are, they're all built differently. Some of them are nonpartisan. Some of them are bipartisan. Some of them are appointed by the state legislatures. Um, so there's not a clear answer in each of those individual states. Now, what's really important to watch the rest of the year is whether the For the People Act, like you mentioned, does pass. Right now, we're seeing uh, individual state legislatures and you know some commissions um, start drawing congressional maps based on the data that came out yesterday. Um, they're going to start you know finalizing those maps pretty soon, um, and so there's time is running out for the For the People Act to actually prevent partisan gerrymandering from being part of the DNA of congressional maps for the next 10 years, unless mm -hmm. there's, you know, a way to retroactively right. um, uh, implement that. So I, I just can't emphasize enough how important that timeline is um, right now and how that really is the, the big question that could define the next 10 years of politics. Uh, okay, so we don't usually uh, talk much foreign policy on the uh, roundtable here on the Bill Press Pod, but uh, I think we're compelled to today because we woke up to learn that the Taliban have now taken over uh, the city of Kandahar, which is the uh, number two largest city in Afghanistan, leaving just about Kabul as the only place uh, the Taliban does not yet control. Um, and already, Sudeep, we are seeing... Uh, headline after headline saying, this is Joe Biden's big political big and big foreign policy mistake. Um, is this how it's going to be remembered? The American people don't seem to want to stay in Afghanistan. It, it, well, it could be remembered as a, as a big American mistake for the last two decades. I don't know if, if Joe Biden himself is going to take uh, all that much uh, uh, blame for this one. Um, it all depends on how much he's able to contain what happens in Afghanistan and keep it there uh, throughout his term. That's that's really the the mm -hmm. question for Biden specifically. Unfortunately, as, as we watch these these horrific scenes of of, uh, of capital after capital of regional capitals falling in Afghanistan, um, it, it's barely registering across the country here because it's just it's uh, Amer Americans are are wondering why are we still there after twenty years? Why haven't we made all that much? Uh, progress with it. It's going to be a pretty grim backdrop uh, for for Biden commemorating the 20th anniversary of 9-11 as these scenes uh, come up um, uh, over the next month in Afghanistan, because it, it will just lead us to ask, like, what what have we made of these last two decades since this happened? Yeah. Uh, and again, Gabe, I saw this morning, Mitch McConnell is now demanding that Joe Biden send troops back into Afghanistan. Of course, we're sending 3,000 just to help people get out of Kabul. Kabul. But um, it, it, there's, Sadiq there's zero public support for restarting this war, is there? There's zero public support. There's also zero congressional support. I mean, Mitch McConnell uh, is not point. speaking for most of Congress. Uh, yeah. Joe Biden in fact, has been saying this uh, internally, externally. This is the thing that he, the point that he made over and over and over during the Obama administration. You could accuse him of many things, but during the Obama administration, he was a fairly consistent voice saying we need to draw down in Afghanistan sooner than uh, particularly the military wanted him to because there's no political support uh, out in the public, but also in Congress. Uh, again, I think what's the scenes that we're seeing right now are truly devastating and, and pretty terrifying. But but the point that many in the White House have made is, you know, they're going to try and mitigate however they can. But 
without the support of the American people for this war, you know, four, four presidents now have, have been involved in this war and three of them have now promised to end it. Biden says that's what he's doing. And that's where the popular support is. Yeah. The, the, the real question, as Sudeep correctly said, I think, is how this how the you know the ramifications of this play out over the next few years, politically speaking. But in terms of short term decision making, if you think that Joe Biden is listening to Mitch McConnell on this, uh, I've got, uh, you know, an infrastructure package to sell you. <laughs> right. Uh, and, and back home, uh, just a final a couple of questions here about where we are on the political front of the COVID crisis. I mean, the White House, particularly the president, they've tried very, very hard to depoliticize the whole issue. Um, but at the same time, with COVID cases back up again, uh, new cases and new hospitalizations, particularly because of the Delta variant, um, at least three Republican governors, Ron DeSantis in Florida and Greg Abbott in Texas and Kristi Noem in South Dakota, have uh, refused to go by CDC guidelines in terms of masks or social distancing or vaccinations. Uh, Leah, there's a little backlash in each state. Could this become a political um, you know, boomerang for them? Absolutely. I mean, I keep thinking about uh, Right now, they those three governors in particular are using ideology, right, as their defense. It's about liberty, about freedom to do whatever you want to do, um, and kind of ignoring the actual human toll. And it's just I keep having flashbacks to, to Bobby Jindal running for president um, while incredibly unpopular in Louisiana uh, because of their, their budget problems and basically saying, well, you know, I was fiscally, you know, I wanted to back off. I wanted to cut taxes and that's what Republicans want. And hmm. now the state is, you know, in, in an economic disaster, but, you know, kind of using ideology to make a stand on the national stage, um, and potentially paying real consequences at home. Um, I will also note that, Greg Abbott is facing primary challengers in 2022, and I do think that's a major uh, factor in his current decision making. Well, certainly, um, Sadiq, there are still a lot of voices out there um, who are poo-pooing the importance of, of masks, and, and starting with Rand Paul uh, in the Senate, uh, and uh, even among some ev evangelicals. Here is Pastor Joshua. Feuerstein the other day preaching to his mega church. Listen to me. I understand and let me speak now to the cameras, to every Christian that has cowered in your home. You have a sound mind. You don't have to wear the mask. You got Jesus. You don't need the vaccine. You got Jesus. All right, Sadiq, Jesus is going to save oh, us. Oh boy. Yeah, yeah that's uh that's uh, you, you know, you know, you, it's hard to even imagine uh this was a week when uh, the number of children hospitalized uh, with COVID across the country hit a record, uh, surpassing uh, what it was during the last round of the pandemic, the last wave. And uh, and views are just fixed. People uh, due to to Trump politics or, or whatever else have just uh, have have been fixated on the vaccine, been fixated on masks. And uh, it, it's almost like we're going to we're going to have to just uh, figure out a way to get by with a, a, at least a third, maybe a half of the country. Um, not willing to to go along with masks or vaccines or a lot of other mitigating uh, effects, and the the politics are are obviously what's what's driving it, and uh, and will continue to drive it for as long as the pandemic lasts. 
Yeah, and I might also mention uh, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene is quoted this morning when she was asked about the rising number of uh, um, hospitalization cases and not enough about hospital beds or whatever. She said, basically, I'm paraphrasing, so what? Uh, none of us are going to live forever. Yeah, there you go. Uh, so, uh, Gabe, um, where do we come out on this in terms of the politics of it? Um, the, in, in terms of dealing with this, um, it's not so much maybe the government agencies, I find, taking the lead as the corporate entities. More and more companies are saying, if you're coming back to work, you got to be vaccinated, right? Um, yeah. And, and so it's not rather than a government mandate, it's a corporate uh, demand. Um, and, and I think an important piece of this is also cultural institutions that play a very important role in our society are stepping into the void as well. I mean, you see a lot of, uh, for example, this is just an example, but in some of these states where that are really getting hard hit now, where the governors, and I should note, you know, Abbott. DeSantis, Noam, all these people want to run for president in 2024. They're trying to send a national message, uh, yeah. you know, where these people are trying to to take this conservative stand. What you're seeing is, for example, uh, college athletic programs, college football teams, college football coaches who are huge people in these states in Mississippi and Louisiana and, and Texas uh, stepping in and saying, you know, our team is fully vaccinated. You have to step in and protect uh, protect your community. Obviously, that hasn't worked overall or not to the degree that, that folks want. But like to your point, major corporations are mandating vaccines. Some restaurants are trying to mandate vaccines, though. For example, here in Austin, there was a fight over restaurants that have tried to mandate vaccines for patrons. And then, of course, the state said, well, we're not allowed to have any mandates because of Abbott's uh, rulings. Which is all a long way of saying that the politics on this continues to be in a lot of flux. But I think the truth is that what we're seeing in some polling now is that there has been a shift, a perceptible one. It's not a huge one uh, against folks who have decided to stay unvaccinated. And the problem here in, in many in many for many people is the, the, the delay of the return to normal. For a lot of people, life has been basically normal for a long time because they have refused to follow the lockdowns, follow the masking requirements, follow the vaccinations. But as schools continue to be to have mask mandates, as uh, institutions continue to be closed, there is this rising frustration that there is this portion of the society, and it's not half, but there is a portion of the society that refuses to go along. I would watch that because if this fall doesn't uh, doesn't uh, unfold as many people want it to, i.e., essentially as normal, that may be the thing that boils over. Mm -hmm. Indeed. All right. Great conversation so far and uh, lots more that uh, we could have talked about but didn't get to, time being of the essence. So uh, let's move on and wrap things up. Thank you, Leah Escaranam. Thank you, Sadiq Reddy. Thank you, Gabe DiBenedetti. We won't let you go, however, with finding out what was the one big story this week that caught your attention, forced you to stop in your tracks at least for a moment and say, holy cow. Um, Sadiq, you want to start us off with your favorite story of the week? Well, this was a little under the radar unless you were following the infrastructure <laughs> bill closely. But along the way during the infrastructure fight, uh, there was this sideshow over cryptocurrencies, over oh, uh, the, these new yeah. assets on, yeah. on how they're going to be taxed. And uh, that alone was complicated enough of figuring out what would happen. Lawmakers got together. They came up with a, an amendment that was going to go through. But my favorite moment was when Senator Richard Shelby of Alabama <laughs> decided that he was going to 
uh, block an amendment from going through unless he got his unrelated amendment on military spending uh, to clear to raise military spending by by some amount. And then Bernie Sanders blocked that proposal uh, because of climate change considerations. And uh, just watching this unfold, you could see the crypto community uh, suddenly <laughs> discover Washington and how Washington works. And they are now making phone calls and, and uh, reaching out to lawmakers and working the House side uh, to get their way. So you've seen uh, the, the Tea Party of the crypto world rise up in this moment, uh, all, uh, all from the infrastructure bill. It's, it's, it's uh, I, I suppose, been... Uh, been an awakening for people on how politics. Uh, you know, I'm glad you mentioned that. I would have added cryptocurrency to one of the topics we should talk about this morning, but I, I don't understand it at all. <laughs> and I could not follow the debate, what it was all about to me. It was so out of, out of, out, outer space kind of thing. Anyhow, so uh, thank you, Sadiq, <laughs> shedding a little light on it. Gabe, what caught your attention? Uh, speaking of extraterrestrials, the thing that to me really dominated my attention this week was the very sad saga that sent uh, Lionel Messi away from Barcelona because of financial issues towards uh, the team in Paris, Paris Saint-Germain, which is really a story about uh, money and corruption uh, and mismanagement in international sports. But I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole because it's just depressing. So instead, I will talk about a funnier, but well, also probably well, well, depressing. Wait, 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 wait. On that point, we're supposed Supposed to All feel right. sorry for this guy who gets forty-one million dollars a year. Bill, you can invite me on for a different podcast. I can talk for hours about this. I feel <laughs> right, sorry okay. for all of us. Uh, <laughs> but what I do want to talk about here is the, um, the New York City has this new COVID vaccine uh, passport uh, that they have rolled out in recent days. And I, a story in Gothamist caught my eye titled NYC's new COVID vaccine passport, simply a, quote, glorified photo storage app, critics say. Uh, and this is based, story basically just outlines how in many restaurants and many institutions in New York, you have to upload your vaccine card to this application so that you can prove that you've been vaccinated. But there's no way in this uh, application to actually prove that what you've uploaded is a COVID vaccine card. So people mm. have instead uploaded pictures of bunny rabbits and kittens. Uh, <laughs> and my favorite was a menu from a barbecue restaurant in San Francisco. And it is all accepted under the app. Oh, my God. Uh, only in New York, right? I guess we could say. Exactly. Uh, so where are we? Leah, what, what's caught your attention? Well, I went for a story that's not about cats this week, <laughs> um, mostly because uh, this seems like a story that your listeners in particular might be interested in. Uh, the Atlantic uh, published a story by Edward Isaac Dover. Uh, on Hakeem Jeffries and yes. him being potentially the first black speaker of the house, it's just worth a read. Um, it's basically going over the difference between what a, a solidly democratic worldview looks like versus progressive and what it actually means to be a progressive, taking mm -hmm. race into account and uh, progressive uh, issues. And it's all just kind of summarizes the issues that we've been talking about for the last few months with the Nina Turner special election with Eric Adams winning the New York City mayor mayoral race. It just it, it helps put um put all of that. Yeah, ex excellent piece, excellent piece. I'm glad you you mentioned that. Uh, and uh, for my favorite story, I I just uh, I must admit I'm sort of obsessed by the latest with Rudy Giuliani. Uh, every week it seems there's a a new take on what Rudy is up to. We know um, that he is uh, under he's been disbarred. 
uh, in New York City and I think Washington, D.C. He's under criminal investigation. Uh, and uh, some say he's also broke because Donald Trump did not pay his $20,000 a day uh, fee. Uh, but we now know that Rudy Giuliani does have a new job. At least he is one of the contributors to uh, the website Cameo. And for $199, he will wish you a happy birthday or celebrate your marriage or a bar mitzvah. Or he would even um, do a little plug for your real estate business, which he did on Cameo. Here is his first appearance on Cameo, uh, touting the uh, uh, real estate business of Samuel Chatwin in New Zealand. Rudy. Give Samuel Chatwin a call if you have an interest in real estate. Uh, Sam tells me that over the last three years, he's done, uh, oh, negotiated millions of dollars worth of real estate transactions. There you go. <laughs> Would you buy a used car from this guy, I guess? But at any rate, uh, someone said, uh, Gabe, the next thing deal for Rudy Giuliani may be standing uh, on a street corner on 6th Avenue with a plastic cup in his hand. Uh, shaking the coins or something, right? Uh, pretty pretty uh, steep downfall for uh, America's favorite mayor. I just want to point out, by the way, he's not the only person on Cameo. Uh, so for Rudy, $199 gets you a greeting. Um, $199 can also get you a greeting from Sarah Palin. Um, Stormy Daniels will cost you $250. And Donald Trump uh, is charging for his greetings Donald Trump Jr., I'm sorry, uh, charging $500 for every little good word that he puts up on Cameo. Um, I don't know, panelists, what do you think about that? I was thinking I might offer my greetings for like maybe 50 cents. Do you think I get somebody to pick up? Oh, where's for my birthday. Highly recommend. Super fun. You so, did? You got Cameo yeah. from whom? Uh, from the Weathercaster on Parks and Rec. Um, or no, no, the news anchor on Parks and Rec. What's his name? Or something like that. Heard. Yeah, he, he gave me a personalized happy birthday. It was delightful. All right, there you go. Rudy's next, Leah. <laughs> I, I'm okay. Thanks, though. Appreciate it. There we go. Today's roundtable. Thank you. A big thank you to Leah Skarnam, Editor-in-Chief, National Journal Hotline. To Gabe DiBenedetti, National Political Correspondent for New York Magazine, and Sudeep Reddy, Managing Editor of Politico. Thank you, panelists, and thank you all, our good friends, for joining us and for listening this morning. We invite you back for the next edition of the Bill Press Pod uh, next Tuesday. We'll be talking about the blockbuster UN report on climate change with Jamie Williams, the president of the Wilderness Society. Diving into that, uh, how bad is it? Uh, is it too late to turn it around? That's the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. We'll see you then. Meanwhile, stay strong, stay safe, stay sane, and come back and see us on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.